Tappers and listeners. These were two groups that people were randomly divided into during an experiment conducted in the year 1990 at Stanford University. They were then put into pairs, one tapper and one listener per pair, and the tappers were given a list of several well-known songs. The Star-Spangled Banner, Rock Around the Clock, America the Beautiful, those kinds of well-known songs that Americans are generally well acquainted with. Each tapper was told to pick a song out and then tap out the rhythm on the table for his or her partner, the listener, to listen to. So for the Star-Spangled Banner, for example, they would start out with... The listener's goal was to guess what the song was, based only on the rhythm that the tapper was tapping. By the way, this is a pretty enjoyable game to play at home if you'd like to give it a try with a friend or family member. But what you'll find if you do try it is that the listener's job is hard. When this experiment was conducted at Stanford, the tappers tapped out a total of 120 songs, and the listeners guessed three of them correctly. Only three out of 120. But here's what made this significant. Before the listeners were allowed to guess the name of the song, the tappers were told to say how sure they were that the listener would get the right answer. And on average, the tappers predicted that the odds were 50%, a 50% chance that the listeners would get it. So the tappers thought they'd be able to get their message across effectively one out of every two times, but in reality, they were successful one of every 40 times. That's a huge discrepancy. And the reason for it is that while a tapper was tapping his song out, what he was hearing in his head was, and if you try this yourself, tapping out the rhythm of a song, you'll see that it's not really possible to do it without hearing the song's melody in your mind. The listeners, meanwhile, though, are only hearing the tapping without all of that internal music. In this experiment, the tappers get frustrated beyond words. You know, when those listeners fail over and over again to identify these well-known tunes, they think, it's so obvious, it's so clear, how can you not be getting this message? It's difficult to be a tapper in this exercise because they've been given knowledge, the name of each song, which makes it pretty much impossible for them to imagine what it would be like to lack that knowledge. As they tap, they can't perceive what it would be like to just hear the taps in isolation without all of that inner music filling their heads. This is the curse of knowledge. We usually think of knowledge as being a good and precious thing, and it generally is. But when you're communicating to another person, once you know something... It's hard to remember what it was like to not know that thing. So the knowledge has cursed us in a way. It's made it hard for us to share knowledge with others effectively because it's so difficult to remember what our listeners' state of mind would be like. And this tapper-listener experiment plays out all over the world every day between teachers and students, bosses and employees, IT people and frustrated computer users, between writers and readers, husbands and wives, parents and children, 
Every one of us is in the business of communicating, and we all struggle sometimes to get our messages across to others. And we are all sometimes under that curse of knowledge. When a CEO talks about shifting the paradigm to get the best ROI, there's often a melody playing in his head that his employees can't hear. And it can be a really tough thing to avoid. You know, this CEO may have 40 years of experience, 40 years of daily immersion in the logic and the jargon of business, and it's, it's hard to unring that bell. It's hard to unlearn or even to pretend to unlearn what you know. According to Chip Heath and Dan Heath, brothers who wrote a book recently called Made to Stick, there are only two ways to beat the curse of knowledge reliably. The first is to not learn anything, and the second is to take your ideas and transform them. Thank you for joining us on The Sun Also Rises today here on KPCG-FM. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and on this episode, we talk about effective communication, how to transform your ideas and convey them to others in ways that will help you conquer the curse of knowledge and in ways that will make your ideas stick. We'll be using an acronym to go through several points here. It's an acronym that the Heath brothers use in their excellent book, and it is SUCCESS, S-U-C-C-E-S, without the final S on the word there. The first principle to effective communication is simplicity. This just means if we want to get our idea through to other people, we often have to get it stripped down to its essential core. This is actually the hardest part of effective communication because our messages are usually complex. There's generally a lot of nuance and qualifiers and multiple perspectives. And, you know, smart people see the value of all of the material. They appreciate all of those complexities. So they want to spend time with them. But for a message to be sticky, it has to be stripped down to its core and made simple. Here's how Chip Heath talked about making ideas simple in a 2015 lecture he gave for the Brightside Group. Simplicity is about a process of prioritizing. And simplicity is about being as effective as you can be in taking out the, the second and the third most important things and making sure you don't say them until you say the first most important thing. We can see one powerful example of this in Southwest Airlines. Southwest is really a gem among airlines because most major airlines very often operate at a loss. They go several years in a row without turning a profit. Airlines often file for bankruptcy and they have to merge with other carriers to avoid folding. But Southwest Airlines, headquartered in Dallas, Texas, is different. Last year, they concluded their 45th consecutive year of profitability. This profit streak is always making headlines because it's so unlike many other airlines. Southwest's successes are studied at business schools around the world. And probably the single biggest reason why Southwest is so uniquely successful is because of its focus on reducing costs and because of the way the company's leaders communicate that focus to the employees. Herb Kelleher was the longest-serving CEO of Southwest, and he once said, quote, 
I can teach you the secret to running this airline in 30 seconds. This is it. We are the low fare airline. Once you understand this fact, you can make any decision about the company's future as well as I can. Here's an example. Tracy from marketing comes into your office. She says her surveys indicate that the passengers might enjoy a light entree on the Houston to Las Vegas flight. All we offer is peanuts, and she thinks a nice chicken Caesar salad would be popular. What do you say? If you are the CEO of Southwestern, you say, Tracy, will adding that chicken Caesar salad make us the low fare airline from Houston to Las Vegas? Because if it doesn't help us become the unchallenged low fare airline, we're not serving any chicken. So Southwest has almost 57,000 employees, from marketers to baggage handlers. And the leadership clearly communicates that simple message, we are the low fare airline, to all of them. That stripped down, essential core of the message is emphasized routinely so that all 57,000 employees can be guided by it and so that they can all work and function in ways that keep the airline profitable and thriving year after year. Of course, there's much more to the company's overall strategy, but if we want to make our messages simple, often we have to be masters of exclusion. Here's Chip Heath once again. There's a famous trial lawyer that's done something unusual for all of us in a business context. He's collected data about every message that he's ever put out into the world. So after every trial, he sends uh, an associate to contact as many jurors as possible. And the research associate interviews the juror and says, of all the arguments, of all the facts that were presented in the courtroom, which one influenced your decisions? What affected the jury's deliberations when you went back to the jury room? And what this lawyer has found, he says, if I walk into the courtroom and I have 10 good arguments, even if every one of them individually is a great blockbuster argument, by the time the jurors get back to the jury room, they don't remember anything. So he says something, I think this is really important. He says, if you say 10 things, you say nothing. That's a pretty sobering message in some ways. But you can see how if Southwest's employees were you know, routinely lectured with the entire very complex business strategy of this giant company, most of them would be overwhelmed and probably cease to be guided by that core message. So an effective communicator has to relentlessly prioritize, make the main point clear before adding the complexities. And making it simple doesn't just mean saying something short. You know, it can't be a soundbite or a dumbed-down version of the message. It's more about elegance and prioritization. So it should be more like a proverb in many cases. Cervantes defined proverbs as short sentences drawn from long experiences. They're both simple and profound. And if we tap into that kind of simplicity with our communication, our ideas will have a much better chance of getting through and sticking. And now coming to the you in success, point number two is that for communication to be effective, it should tap into the power of the unexpected. To really get people's attention, you often need to break a pattern. You know, people adapt to consistent patterns remarkably fast. Any sort of consistent sensory stimulation 
uh, pretty soon will be tuned out. So if you really want to catch attention and make a lasting impression, you have to break the listener's guessing machine. You have to surprise them. The award-winning screenwriter Nora Ephron has talked before about her first day in a journalism class back at Beverly Hills High School. The students all walked into class that day with a pretty good idea of what a journalist does. A journalist collects the facts, which are usually the five W's, who, what, when, where, and why, and then they report them. That's what the students thought as they sat down in front of their typewriters, and their instructor told them their first assignment. They were told to write just the first sentence of a news story. The summary lead is what that first sentence is often called. And the first sentence is always supposed to carry the essential information of a story. It's supposed to be really concise, but still convey all the most important information. So Nora's instructor gave the students all the facts for their assignment. He said, Kenneth L. Peters, the principal of Beverly Hills High School, announced today that the entire high school faculty will travel to Sacramento next Thursday for a colloquium in new teaching methods. Among the speakers will be anthropologist Margaret Mead, college president Dr. Robert Maynard Mutchins, and California Governor Edmund Pat Brown. So Nora and all of the aspiring journalists pecked away at their typewriters, trying to build the first summary lead of their careers. And Nora explains that she and her classmates all produced leads that basically reordered the facts a little bit and condensed them into a single sentence. And the instructor collected all of those leads and he read through them quickly. Some of the students were excited to hear what they were sure would be positive feedback about their work. But the instructor set the papers down and paused. And then he said, the lead to the story is there will be no school next Thursday. Nora and the other students were surprised. It was unexpected, and it left a deep impression on them. She later called it a breathtaking moment. And Nora says that for the rest of that year, every assignment in the class had a secret, an unexpected hidden point that the students had to discover in order to produce a good story. And that instructor's teaching method of really surprising her and breaking her guessing machine left a deep impression on Nora. All those unexpected lessons stuck with her, and it was part of the reason why she later became such a successful writer. Our third trait of effective communication, the first C in success, is that a good sticky message must be concrete. If a message makes you see something, hear, smell, or taste something, then it's concrete. The opposite is abstract. And especially in the business world, so many concepts are abstract. So it makes it difficult to effectively communicate them. Remember our CEO back in the beginning telling his employees to shift the paradigm to get the best ROI for the company. You know, not only is that just a lot of business jargon, it's also abstract and utterly forgettable. But now let's contrast that forgettable abstract language with a message that is very different. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. 
That, of course, was U.S. President John F. Kennedy back in 1961. And this was a remarkable speech because even though the goal of getting a man on the moon was infinitely complex, he made it simple first, and the message was also surprising and unexpected, partly because of its audacity and bluntness, but it was also concrete. Let's put a man on the moon and return him safely. You can see that clearly. You can picture it. If JFK had been our abstract CEO, he might have instead said, this nation must achieve space-related objectives by maximizing team-oriented innovative strategies and harnessing effectual and operable peripatetic lunar-based aerospace initiatives. JFK didn't speak that way. He didn't take refuge in abstractions, which don't normally inspire people. Instead, he was concrete, and the message stuck. It inspired America and stirred the country, and this message motivated millions of people for a decade. And before the decade ended, Neil Armstrong was walking on the moon. Here's Chip Heath once again. Every profession, every field has their own abstractions, and the problem with abstractions is we're trying to get people to act differently. We're trying to get our clients to act differently. We're trying to get our employees to act differently. And yet we're talking to them in this abstract, professional, business kind of jargon, and we're not always connecting. So there it is. If we want to overcome the curse of knowledge, if we want to connect, if we want to get through to people, we need our messages to be concrete. Point four, the second C in success is to make our message credible. For most of human history, duodenal ulcers were a mystery. These are the most common type of ulcers, which one in ten people will get at some point in their life. And they're not fatal, but they are very painful. People used to think duodenal ulcers were caused by too much acid in the stomach eating through part of it. They thought that spicy foods and stress and alcohol, those kinds of things were the cause. And they thought that there was no way to cure them. But in the early 1980s, a couple of medical researchers from Perth, Australia, discovered something astonishing. They found out that duodenal ulcers are caused by bacteria. The researchers were Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, and they found that the H. pylori bacteria was the cause. It was a huge discovery because it meant that those ulcers that afflicted so many people could be easily cured with antibiotics. But there was a problem. No one believed Barry Marshall and Robin Warren. Medical experts didn't think bacteria could survive the harsh acids of the stomach. And they were not impressed with Marshall, who was just a staff pathologist. And they were even less impressed with Warren, who was an internist in training, not even a doctor yet. And to make matters worse, a medical researcher from Perth is like a physicist from Mississippi, or maybe like a religious leader from Nazareth. People get snobby about locations sometimes, and the fact that Marshall and Warren came from Perth made the leading medical experts in Europe and the U.S. Um, not even want to hear their message. They couldn't get their research published in any medical journals, and in the rare event that they were able to speak at a conference, other researchers generally didn't take them seriously. By 1984, Marshall reached a breaking point. So he skipped breakfast one morning and asked a group of researchers to join him in his lab. They examined his stomach with an endoscope, 
to make sure that it was healthy. And then while they looked on in shock, he drank a full glass of about a billion H. pylori bacteria. Within a few days, Marshall was in pain, and the endoscope showed that his previously pink and healthy stomach lining was now red and inflamed, headed toward full-blown duodenal ulcers. All of this was carefully documented, and then a few days later, he began taking a course of antibiotics and bismuth, which is the active ingredient in Pepto-Bismol. Within a very short time, he was all better again. So this demonstration got everyone's attention, and more and more researchers began to examine the role of bacteria in ulcers. And a few years later, in 1994, the National Institute of Health endorsed Marshall and Warren's research, and antibiotics began to be used to neutralize this previously debilitating ailment. And in 2005, Marshall and Warren received the Nobel Prize. For their work. So credibility made all the difference. Warren demonstrated, really to the detriment of his own health, at least temporarily, how much he believed his theory. He basically modeled a testable credential, and it ended up convincing others to believe him too. Of course, that's a dangerous way to get your message across and, and not a wise course of action by any means there, but it shows how important credibility is. If people don't believe your message, it won't get through to them. Or if it does, it won't stick. So credibility is key. And it can also be established by citing an authority sometimes. You know, you can say this economics theory isn't something I came up with. Alan Greenspan first posited this, and it works. Or if you're discussing business innovation, you could quote Steve Jobs or maybe Herb Kelleher the former CEO of Southwest Airlines, who we spoke about earlier. Mr. Gerald Flurry is the host of the Key of David program here on KPCG, and he's also a writer. One of his many booklets is called The Book of Chronicles. It's about the biblical books by that name. And in one section, Mr. Flurry calls attention to the way Ezra, the author of Chronicles, bolstered his credibility by citing his sources. Mr. Flurry points out, all of the different books that Ezra quotes from, at least six well-regarded books that Ezra cites. And then Mr. Fleury writes, quote, Ezra was an intelligent, God-inspired scholar. He was a studier and researcher. He used as many great sources as he could get his hands on to tie everything together in this masterpiece of spiritual architecture. End quote. So relying on the work of others can help us build more powerful messages, and then citing those authorities can really boost our credibility when we convey those messages to other people. We can also sometimes use an anti-authority, like anti-smoking commercials that have a person stricken with lung cancer, warning people not to make the same mistakes that they made. Citing statistics can sometimes also imbue our messages with credibility, too if we do it skillfully. One final example I'll mention is from back in the year 1980. There was a presidential debate happening between President Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, who was running to replace Carter that year. And President Reagan asked the audience, are you better off than you were four years ago? 
Reagan could have presented a bunch of numbers about the high inflation rates and rising unemployment and other problems that had happened during Carter's administration, but instead he deferred to his audience. He asked them to consider their own experience during Carter's presidency. And it was a very effective way of tapping into the power of kind of a personal credibility there and making people believe him based on their own experience. Point number five, the E stands for emotional. A sticky message should be emotional, but it doesn't have to manipulate people like a tearjerker movie or something like that. Often it just means helping them to personally connect with your message, make them feel what you're telling them, make them care. In 2004, researchers at Carnegie Mellon University set up an experiment They gave all of the participants $5 for completing a survey. The point of that was just to make sure that the participants had some cash on hand. And they gave them that money in $1 bills. And then half of the participants were given a letter asking for donations for children in Africa. And the letter was full of numbers. This many million children are malnourished in this country. This many million in this other country. And this percent are underweight by this amount. Uh, So half of the participants in this study were given that letter, and the other half were given a different letter. It was also asking for donations for the same problem, but the letter was about one little girl. It said, quote, Any money that you donate will go to Rokia, a seven-year-old girl who lives in Mali, in Africa. Rokia is desperately poor and faces a threat of severe hunger, even starvation. Her life will be changed for the better as a result of your financial gift. With your support and the support of other caring sponsors, Save the Children will work with Rokia's family and other members of the community to help feed and educate her and provide her with basic medical care. Well, the difference in the donation amounts was remarkable. The participants who received that first letter with all the numbers and statistics, they donated an average of $1.14. But the half of the people who received the letter about Rokia donated an average of $2.38, more than twice as much. That's the power of emotion. And of course, we don't want to exploit it in our communication, but if we use emotion honestly and effectively, we can appeal to the heart and our messages can make an impact. The final way to make our messages stick is with stories. I won't spend too much time on this since we did an episode last year devoted entirely to the topic of the power of storytelling. But I'll just play one final short clip here from Chip Heath's presentation about how stories have made some ancient messages very sticky. We're still telling Aesop's fables 2,500 years after Aesop lived. The boy who cried wolf, the tortoise and the hare. If Aesop had given Aesop's helpful hints, you know, you remember that story about the fox who couldn't reach the grapes and therefore walks away and declares them sour. You know, that's where we get the phrase sour grapes. If Aesop had given Aesop's helpful hints, Don't be a bitter jerk when you fail. I'm not sure we'd still be talking about Aesop 2,500 years later, but he told stories, and those stories have lived on. They have crossed cultural boundaries. They're told in dozens of countries around the world. So anyway, 
making a message stick is not easy. And you probably won't be able to make all of your messages have all six of these traits. You don't really even need all six for every message. But a message with four of these will be more memorable than one with two or three. And a message with two will be stickier and more memorable than one with none of these. Back in July of 2017, Mr. Fleury delivered a very powerful message about leadership. And the message included seven points on how to build leadership skills. And number three on this list was learn to love and use your own language. He said, quote, learn to love and use your own language. We have so much to communicate. We have everything to communicate. You need to really learn your language and love it and keep improving it all of your life, end quote. And that's a very valuable admonition for all of us. In order to hone our leadership abilities, to improve our relationships with others, and even just to clarify our thoughts, we should work toward communicating more effectively. Isaiah 3 describes modern societies, and it says that eloquent orators, effective communicators, are becoming more and more rare in this time. Those who communicate in a way that sticks, in ways that are simple, unexpected, concrete, credible, emotional, and that tap into the power of story, those people are becoming rare. And that's a sobering thing to recognize because effective communication is so critical and so valuable. Proverbs 12:18 talks about this in a powerful way. In the English Standard Version, it says, the tongue of the wise brings healing. And then Proverbs 16:33 says, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. And that's really what these six points are all about. These can help our speech to be healing and judicious. They can add persuasiveness to our lips. They can help us overcome the curse of knowledge and make our messages stick. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG FM. Please send us your comments and questions by emailing tsar at kpcg.fm or you can message us on Twitter. Our handle is tsar underscore radio show. We would like to thank Chip Heath and Dan Heath. If you'd like to dig deeper into some of these tips to make your communication more memorable and impacting, Made to Stick is a very powerful book. And an even more powerful one is The Book of Chronicles by Mr. Gerald Flurry. We will include a link to both of those in our show notes on SoundCloud. We would also like to thank the 2009 Herbert W. Armstrong College Young Ambassadors. That was them singing the national anthem there in the introduction. And we'll leave you today with the words of George Bernard Shaw. The single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. (laughs) 